Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Amen. So this mini-series before Easter is just entitled Behold the King, right? And so um, we, will, we will just be beholding, hopefully, the beauty of the King and just letting our hearts be filled again with just the wonder of the majesty of our God. Now, if you have been with us at the Avenue, um, we have preached. Um, the last time you heard my voice, we were finishing up um, eight weeks in Micah. Um, and, and it was really one of those hard books. Everybody say the 12. Uh, you know, there are the 12. Okay, yeah, we got to work on our Bible trivia. We got to work on that. We got to work that out a little bit. There are the 12 disciples in the New Testament. But then there are the 12 in the Old Testament. And that kind of refers to, anybody know? Minor prophets, right? And so this is one of, Michael was one of those 12 with a similar tone. This is God um, calling his people to an account um, most of the time for a lack of faithfulness to Yahweh's covenant commands. And it's the depiction of how injustice has literally just cut, made a cloud over literal Israel, um, both uh, exterior, externally and internally. It's, it's marked by injustice and wronging one another, both foreigners and their own brothers. And so because of that, God has to um, send the covenant consequences um, to his people. But in the middle of that darkness, which is so hard, it's a really hard book to work through, like Lamentation and most of the prophetic literature, right? It's hard books to work through. But in the middle of it, there was always little glimpses and glimmers of hope that after this darkness, there would be redemption. Yes, Jerusalem is a heap of rubble, and now shrubbery is starting to grow over where the temple used to be laid. But one day, Micah 4, God will restore Jerusalem. Oh, and people will run back to Mount Zion. There will be restoration, right? And the, the, the key figure that was leading this restoration of what God had to destroy was this shepherd king. Y'all remember that in Micah? There was always this figure who would come and protect his people. There was always this figure who would come and lead his people out. There was this figure who would destroy and annihilate his enemies, right? It was this picture of a shepherd king, and I wonder if you know who that is, y'all. It's just pointing us to our King Jesus. And so if we're faithful Bible readers, and, and as we sit under the Word, it's my hope. I was just, um, I was said it in passing, man. I think at this church, almost in five years, you probably heard me preach and teach almost 120 some odd times. It's like, man, that's a lot of sermons. But it's my hope that as we continue doing that, not that you just have your intellect tickled, but that we grow in our understanding of God's Word. Amen? Right? So we want to be better Bible readers, people who are more able to rightly divide the word of truth. And so if we are to do that, if we all are supposed to be better Bible expositors, right? You don't just send, or we send him to seminary so he can learn his word. We don't need to learn our word. We'll just wait on him to tell us. You sound like Old Testament folks. You know, Moses, you go get it. You just tell us what he say. If your Christianity is just based off what I say, you are missing the whole point. This whole season when the temple, when the veil is ripped and now you get access to God, that means you can get just as much of God as I get. You don't have to wait on Pastor Tim, right? 
So I want to learn. I want to grow in my word. And one of the ways that we need to do that is we got to be better biblical theologians, right? We got to be better biblical theologians. We, you know, sometimes we, we do what you as a commoner probably think is what we call systematic theology. You take a topic you learn and you bore a hole in that topic, right? You take a, the theology of marriage. You take the theology of suffering. And you take that topic and you search the Bible and you bore a hole in it. And amen. We need better systematic theologians. But we also as God's people have to be better biblical theologians, which means what? We've got to understand the theology of all of the 66 books, how it works together, how it ties together, what are the threads? And so I want to tell you really quickly about the kingdom. Everybody say the kingdom. What you need to know is that the beginning, in the beginning, after God creates and he separates light from darkness or whatever, when he creates man and he gives them dignity and value, he gives them an assignment. What's the assignment that he gives Adam and Eve? Have dominion. I want you to rule. But what happened? They fell. And so then we move forward in this kingdom narrative to really the epitome, the apex, the summit of Old Testament biblical history. You know what it was? It was life under the United Kingdom, specifically when David and Solomon were ruling, right? When you read the prophetic literature, whether the major prophets or the minor prophets, what are they all waiting for? What are they all trying to get back to? That kingdom. Man, when will it be restored? That was the apex of Old Testament biblical history, life in the United Kingdom. But what happened with that? That kingdom fell. So for many of us, many of our Bibles start with John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whosoever, me, I believe in him, I shall have everlasting life. Everybody say amen. That's true. But do you realize that the story that the Bible is telling you started long before that? It started long before 2002 when you was born. It started long before 1976 when you was born. It started long before your mama and them went to the drive-in movie and had a look. It started long before that. Long before that. So I want you to listen at me. Because Adam and Eve failed to rule. And because the United Kingdom was not eternal. God sent his son named Jesus to rule and do what they couldn't. That's the gospel. It might trip you out a little bit, but that really is the gospel, y'all. N.T. Wright puts it like this, that the crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and therefore the Lord of the world. That is the gospel. Can I just say it one more time? The crucified and risen Messiah, his name is Jesus, right? He's the Messiah of Israel, and therefore he's the Lord of the whole world. That is the gospel in a nutshell because you are covering both ends. Now you have a personal savior, but your personal salvation is found within the whole story of the Bible. Amen, somebody. When Paul issued these words, and the ones we love to hold on to, Romans 1, he's talking about the gospel and what it means. He's talking to a group of people when they heard the word gospel, you know what they thought about? They were like, oh, there must be some new emperor coming. They didn't think about a personal savior. When Paul's talking about the gospel, they're like, oh, who is it? Judas, Maximus, Clausimus, Sodomus, Sodomus, Rodimus, Optimus, Prime? What is it? 
There's some dude, some plebe or some publican, somebody's going to rise up. He's going to be in authority and he's going to usher in this new season of peace and prosperity and justice for all of us. That's what they were thinking when they heard the word gospel. And I want to tell you that just because we're getting our gospel definition adjusted, it's still good news. Inside joke. Where the five-year folks at? Amen. Look at this room, y'all. Isn't that crazy? Amen. That's crazy. So the gospel is, once again, the crucified and risen Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, therefore the Lord of the world, and he is and has begun to usher in a new world filled with his justice, his peace, and we get to be a part of it. To quote Kanye, Jesus is king. (laughs) And the message today will be about the extravagant worship of the king of the world. It's The message today is about the extravagant worship of the king of the world. Amen? So most of us for Holy Week, we think, oh, Palm Sunday, that's when it kind of begins. Hey, Jesus, how many of y'all was in the Palm Sunday play and you had your little palm branch? Hey, hey, you know, Jesus come in, you were waving in, you were hitting your little brother with it, tickling his ear, you got a spanking, you know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm just recounting my story. I'm sorry, I apologize. Most of us think Holy Week, Palm Sunday kind of kicks that week off. But um, let me just um, take, I I borrowed this from Bible.org. Let's just go through a quick little timeline of Holy Week, okay? Let me just tell you how everything kind of rolls. So Sunday, um, according to, it was a day of messianic presentation. I was kind of thinking that. That was Palm Sunday. That was the triumphal entry. Monday was really the theme was the messianic power. Jesus cursed the fig tree. He cleansed the temple to display his power and authority. Tuesday was messianic rebuke. It was that big Olivet discourse where he literally was thrashed all of Israel's leadership and just telling them this mess is going to be destroyed again, right? It was almost like the prophetic uh, uh, rebukes once again in one whole chapter. Wednesday through Friday, they summarized it as saying that it was the day of messianic preparation. This was the day where Jesus was preparing, this, this period of, of 72 hours or so, Jesus was pre- preparing his disciples for his death. But before all of those things even began, there was one act that is recorded in probably three or four Gospels. It depends on which theologian you're sitting under or listening to. And it was Jesus' anointing. And this is where we'll focus today. You know, Gene and I were on our little staycation. Um, how many, I want to just, where the husbands at who, who are in the look at this ministry? Y'all lay down and you sitting down and they're like, baby, look at this. <laughs> baby, look at this. Baby, look at this. Well, I am the king of the look at this ministry. If you need tips, I will help you out. You know, some, you know, Gina, Gina laughs at everything. If you don't know anything about Gina, my, my wife loves to laugh. Uh, and I'm, ta- I'm not talking about chuckle. I'm talking about laugh. <laughs> oh, son, 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 she loves me more than you, so don't get yourself in trouble. You know, don't get yourself in trouble. But anyway, uh, so she was like, Tim, look at this. And so she showed me, and it was uh, so funny. It was this girl, she was, I, I've come to, it was the bride. She came out, uh, it is the reception, and she kind of, it looks like she kind of rips, she had the NBA tearaway dress, you know what I'm saying, rips, 
and she and she went on like a full she went on like a full Beyonce dance routine. It was ah, it was choreographed to the T. Like the music, it wasn't even like the singles weekend on iTunes. Somebody had remastered and redid it. I'm talking about that thing was hit, and I was like, whoa, this is pretty impressive. Then I'm looking at Gina, I was like, I got cheated. And Gina's like, she didn't do that for her husband. She was doing that for herself, right? Because it was really, it was really, I'm talking about smoke, lights. It was like, whoa, it was just strange. But it was kind of over, it was really over the top. But it was well done, but it was, everybody say extra. What we are going to see, what we are going to see today is something that was, it cannot be described as anything other than extra. It's just extra. It would, it would have been like you being one of those honored guests at that wedding, and then all of a sudden, the lights went down, you was eating your, sipping your pina colada, and all of a sudden, somebody from your table just gets out. Bah! It's like, what? It's just extra, right? It was just extra. So let's, let's read. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, this is obviously this is someone that Jesus had encountered and, uh, and healed. Jesus is now at his house. And a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, listen, I told you, this story was actually mentioned in, depending on who you're reading, three or four different gospel accounts. In John's gospel, John gives the identification of this unknown woman in Matthew to Mary. We won't box with that, but, you know, I just want to give you some context. The idea here, though, is that she brings in this alabaster jar, which essentially this is some kind of vial, this is some kind of flask, and inside of it, it contains precious ointments or perfume, right? Um, the, the ointment that we believe in it was nard, okay? And nard uh, would have been a very, very costly perfume that would have been used as some kind of perfume or some kind of deodorizer in hot climates. It would have been used for anointing of the dead for burial. So we know that the dead, obviously there, there becomes an odor. And so nard would have been used to kind of somehow mask that. Um, it would have been used ritually for the anointing of priests or kings. Um, and it would have also been considered to be a wonderful lavish gift for royalty or a king because it was so, so valuable. The reason why it was so valuable, Nard was, is because it came from a rare plant. I mean, in really obscure, hard to get to parts of the known world back then, um, so it made it very expensive. How expensive, Pastor Tim? We believe that this probably cost one year's salary. What she had in that vial cost probably a year's worth of wages. Now. I don't know how many of y'all, I looked at y'all's pledges, and I'm just playing. And I didn't see a year's worth of wages for some of y'all. But seriously, what could you do with a year's worth of wages? What would you be willing to do with a year's worth of wages? Anyway, so what is happening is that she takes this thing and now she pours this very expensive ointment on Jesus' head as he's reclining at table. 
Uh, if you just want scenery, we just got a new kind of sectional thing in our house, and it's kind of where all five of us can sit down and uh, it's kind of U-shaped. But you should probably think in that way. When they went to eat and dine at supper, it was kind of like a reclining thing, and everybody kind of leaned over and reclined next to someone. And so Jesus is kind of posted up, and he's kind of reclining. Um, and this woman or Mary, whoever you choose, she comes and she anoints his head with it. Now, uh, J. Hampton Keithley just says this, that, her actions obviously demonstrated her deep devotion and love for the Savior, but it also demonstrated her keen insight, everybody say insight, into his true person, true identity and purpose. Now, I can't really imagine that this, this unnamed woman in this text or Mary and John probably, she had not been sitting under the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. I can't imagine that her theology was dotted with I's and T's crossed. Um, but the idea here is that whatever she knew, she was able to identify even what the theologians couldn't see. I told you the vial was to be used to uh, anoint priests for the office is when we wash the feet of our elders, I put oil and we anoint their feet. It's, it is a sign of anointing someone for the office. We need the power and the presence to go with you to fulfill your duties in this office. When she was doing that, she was anointing her priest for his work. She had met her mediator. She found her savior, her deliverer from sin and oppression. And she was preparing his body for burial. And she beheld the one who would make the world right. And she gave him as precious of a gift as she could find that was fit for a king. But as she did this, everybody say, but. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They said, why this waste? They asked, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. There's such a, when you go back through the week and you read this scripture, there's such an obvious and clear distinction between her actions and the actions of the disciples. They met that act with disdain. Like the, 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 the grammar here is literally, they were put off. They were indignant. They were upset. This is not just like, hey, where y'all want to go eat at the church? Y'all want to go to Central? Y'all want to go to Elwoods? Uh, let's go to Elwoods. No, let's go to, okay. This wasn't compliance. I would rather her not do it. They was upset. They were indignant. They said, uh-uh, this is an absolute waste. And they were so disturbed that they actually rebuked her publicly. Now, if you are following with the Gospels, one of the things as you read, which I encourage you to do during Easter season, even pick the shortest Gospel, read through it to get your sense of what's happening. If you, if, you, if you are a gospel reader, you know that the disciples, the Pharisees, the crowds, they all have this tendency to be really aloof. They're hard-hearted. They never really seem to be understanding what's going on. They always seem to be like, man, what are you thinking about? Which is not our, it is not our time to chime in and read the gospels with arrogance. I think the disciples, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, all those people were probably meant to show us more symptoms of ourselves than to look at them and say, I, psh, if Jesus was right here, I would have knew. No, no, no. They are in the text to show us how easily it is to miss him. 
how natural it is in our instincts to miss the Savior of the world dining with us. Not just in a building with us, walking with us. Come on, man. One thing as you read the Gospels, there's this messianic secret. There's a timing to Jesus when he kind of wants this to be revealed. And as we enter into Holy Week in this season, this is like the crescendo. He's turning towards Jerusalem, and now he's, he's kind of unveiling himself. The, the, the three years of ministry is kind of over. This is what we've all been waiting on, and there's no, but he's letting the cat out of the bag. But it's always important to realize in the gospel who kind of gets the credit for rightly identifying him. And what is so cool about the gospel is it's like it's never the people you think it should be. It's always women, Gentiles, fishermen, outsiders. Those are the people who get credit. Surely the one who's crucified, surely he was the son of God. Pay attention now. But what were they concerned about? I don't know. I, listen, we could take a couple guests. Apparently, maybe they were doing it in the name of religious order and decency. Maybe, you know, they, hey, hey, you know we got to be good philanthropists and altruists and, and humanitarian causes. I don't know. But check with me. I think the, the idea is one of the things here, this is a waste. They were preoccupied with efficiency. Everybody say efficiency. Hey, man, this woman is doing this thing. She's breaking the most valuable thing that she's owned. She's lavishing it on the Lord. She's anointing. She's rightly identifying him as the prophet, priest, and the king. And they're like, oh, this is a waste. They're preoccupied with efficiency at the very least. But I want to tell you something, child of God. There's no such thing as an efficient faith. There is no such thing as an efficient faith. Faith cannot be contained. Faith bubbles over. Faith erupts. It can't be neatly packaged. When you see the thing that you've always desired, there's no way you can act according any way other than to your nature what is in you. Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have with you always, but you will not always have me. Then she poured this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in the memory of her. This was about as sharp, the grammar lens that this was about as sharp a rebuke as you could get. This wasn't just Jesus kind of like, hey, man, y'all chill out. Y'all, y'all been in the middle school, you're like, oh, man, y'all chill out. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't y'all chill out. It's like, hey, back up. Stop bothering this woman, right? You want to make Pastor Tim a little annoyed? Bother me in worship. I'm a pretty passive kind of guy, but I don't come here to see you. I love you, and we can do that six days and 23 other hours, but this one. Can you let me just get my eyes on my king? Don't act like this the only time we're going to see each other. 
If it is, then we doing something wrong. Systematically, we doing something wrong. If this, oh my God, it's the only time. Okay, we did, let, let me go back and fix that. But I want worship. Which is also a problem if this is the only time I'm worshiping too. But I digress. <laughs> let me just get something out of the way. Some of y'all, I'm about to rub you. I'm coming down your street in the old Black Baptist Church. I'm about to drive down your road. I'm coming down your pew. Some of y'all have, and, and no fault of your own, you, 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 you saw that, and you, you struggle with verse 11. The poor you will have always, but you won't always have me. Wait a minute. Does Jesus not care? My Jesus cares about the poor. He cares about the least of these. Those who lend to the poor, lend to God. Amen, amen. That is true. But we talking about priorities. I got to mow the grass. I got to brush my teeth first before I get out this house. This is not a matter of whether or not caring for the poor is valid or a staple of Christianity. That is not what this text is about. But this text is about it ain't the number one priority. Jesus does this in the Gospels. Y'all remember Jesus is encountering the, you know, some religious leaders, and they're fasting, and they're like, Jesus, why your boys ain't fasting? Jesus is like, my boys ain't got to fast. I'm here. <laughs> so, come on now. Come on now. I know you're mad, but I'm telling you the truth. Jesus said, hey, ain't no need to fast. I'm standing right here. Didn't he also do this with Mary, Martha, and them? Hey, she cleaning up. One of them, Mary's like, I'm just going to go sit at his feet. Martha's like, why are you doing all that? She's like, yo, I'm here. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to get off you. I'm going to just let the word stand for what it is. Jesus says there are priorities. One commentator just said this, social reform as here can and is often used as a substitute for faith in the Savior. Social reform, as here, can and is often used as a substitute for faith in the Savior. I'm going to skip down to his other quote. I love this one. You know, let's just talk about devotion. Devotion to a hobby or a sport is seen as merely enthusiasm, but devotion to the Savior is viewed as fanaticism. Isn't it crazy? It's like when you do lavish things, nobody, nobody talk about you when you paint your face blue, shave your head, and put a tiger in it, talking about 9019. Nobody bother you. We all, we, we've normalized that. But if anybody does anything out of the ordinary for Jesus, they're a fanatic. Now, something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. The plain truth is, as one commentator says, that literally her devotion was making everybody else uncomfortable. Because everybody else is saying, is that what we're supposed to be doing? Y'all know when we go to them classes in school and it's time for presentations. On my first presentation at Bucknell University, I went up that thing and I had a poster board. It was year 2000. I came from John L. LaFleur Magnet School, which is a public school in Mobile, Alabama. And I didn't know I was sitting in, you know, with clips from Andover and Hanover and all the boarding schools. And, and so when that joker went up and he put his USB in the computer, I was like, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Is that what we supposed to be doing? Girl, I wanted to take my little poster board and I throw it in the trash. I was like, oh, man. It's convicting them. 
Because they're like, yo, do I love him like that? Would I take the most valuable thing I own and would I just pour it on him? I don't know. Ah! Come on, y'all. I'm coming down your street today. There is no more manageable faith. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. And they're being tore up by it. Jesus didn't even need to preach no words. They're mad about it. They're just tore up by it. Some of y'all been jealous of people's worship in here. Some of y'all know people out giving you and you've been jealous. Don't, don't, don't disturb them. Let them bring everything they have if they want. It's only a renewed heart and a transformed mind that produces, literally, the the illuminate work of the Holy Spirit produces new instincts in you. Then when I talk about the power of the gospel, listen, you don't get to Jesus and he doesn't hand you a blue book and say, answer the questions. He's not checking you on the theology and like, here's the scantron and catechizing you. What the evidence of the gospel and whether it's really taking root in your heart is it produces new instincts. Matthew says you produce according to your own kind. You bear fruit according to what is actually in you. You can't manifest stuff that you really don't actually believe is what I'm saying. And literally what, what has happened here is it's being revealed that the disciples are carnal-minded. Everybody say carnal-minded. Now listen, here's the difference. You can write this down. I didn't get to put it on screen. Carnal-mindedness does not always mean that you're vile or immoral or evil or depraved. That's not always carnal-mindedness. Sometimes that's easy. Somebody comes in and they they got a a big sledgehammer and they're trying to hit people with it. Okay, bro, mm-mm, 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 mm-mm. That's about as carnal as we're going to get. But to be carnal-minded really according to Scripture just means that your priorities are not the kingdom priorities. It just means that your priorities aren't the kingdom's priorities. What Jesus seems to be interested in, you seem, not, you seem to be disinterested in. What he's excited about seems to bring you boredom. What, what the people he wants, y'all just don't match up. And sometimes it just gets revealed and it just bubbles over. 